0: History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to History happened everywhere. Welcome to History Happened Everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the tall glass of water that is Mr. Peter Goddard. Still all sparkling, Ryan. Well, you are my sparkling reservoir of (laughs) 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 of juice. Oh
1: my lord, that's a terrible image.
0: Okay, so last week, the Dersolator selected Uzbekistan, 1876 to 2007, and smell.
1: Smell, yes. That's uh, exciting. Very challenging for me, because as you know, I have a very, very poor, borderline, absent sense of smell myself. Oh, you poor little man. Uh, you've got a good sense of smell, though, haven't you? I can smell you from here. Uh, well, what? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do today, Ryan, yeah. is discover the essential smells of Uzbekistan. Oh,
0: that's exciting.
1: Uh, well, we're also going to discover a metaphorical aroma—the stench of corruption. Okay. And then finally, we're going to try and cover that smell up with the perfume of
0: Uzbekistan. Oh, nice. That sounds great. Well, uh, let me warn you that this perfume has a dark side. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Peter, I'm looking forward to it too. Should we crack on? Let's do it. All right.
1: Let me take you to the Central Asian country of Uzbekistan, basically where Azerbaijan is. (laughs) If you just like to import last week's description of the area, that would be perfectly good. But in fact, the Republic of Uzbekistan is a doubly landlocked country in Central Asia. Do you remember what doubly landlocked meant? No. It is a country that is landlocked, so it's not attached to any oceans. Yeah. But all of the countries to which it also borders are also landlocked. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember now. There are two countries that are landlocked doubly in the world, and that is Uzbekistan and... Oh, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Liechtenstein.
0: Oh, okay. That was my episode.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. Let's be yeah, uh, reasonable here. Uh, it does have a navy, though. Funnily enough, there is an Uzbek River Force. They patrol a
0: 156 kilometers of river border, to the border with Afghanistan. So, I'm picturing a lot of money being spent on kayaks and pedalos.
1: Uh, the, the pedalo force is one to be reckoned with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Super strong legs in the pedalo force. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, they go shallow as well. They'd be good for landing yeah. craft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so these guys, they counter drug trafficking and illegal immigration and stuff like that. But uh, it's surprising for a doubly landlocked country to have a navy, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. So this is in an area sometimes described as the Stans. North and west, it's got Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. to the east, Turkmenistan and Afghanistan to the south. Uh, in fact, there are only seven Stans and Pakistan is just the other side of Afghanistan. Right. This whole region of bordering countries are all Stans. A lot of Stans. and uh, Stan is... Persian or Urdu for place of so place of various things place of Uzbek
0: right Uh, okay the place of the Uzbeki and Uzbek is uh, the
1: language as well the first language of Uzbekistan is Uzbek unsurprisingly yeah a lingua franca a commonly used language is also Russian because of Mm. its history with the Soviet Union so a lot of people speak Russian but there are other ethnic groups with their own languages as well Tajik which is also spoken one would imagine in Tajikistan okay So yeah, we're in the stands. One of the things that you wouldn't assume about Pakistan, and is also true of Uzbekistan, is it's a Muslim country, mostly Sunni Muslims. But it's got quite a complicated history with Islam, so we'll cover that later. Mm. It is an Islamic country, but it kind of has quite a unique approach to that in its history, which we will discover quite a lot about. Okay, so geographically, this is uh, about 447,000 square kilometres, about 80% of a France. Okay. Almost France-sized. 80% desert, though, so... Wow. Not that ...inviting. Uh, there's a little bit of mountain areas. There's some fertile bits, and notably the Fergana Valley is one of those, which is about 21,000 square kilometres, or one Israel, if you prefer.
0: Is it desert-desert, as in, like, classic sweeping sand dunes, I or is it... I think it's more rocky, right. rocky bleakness than actual... Yeah. sandy desert uh, it's certainly not hugely green
1: <laughs> mm. uh, it's got about 34 million people so it's about the size of a france but half the people
0: okay but then 80 percent of it is desert so they're all i guess squashed Smashed into one into area
1: a few specific areas yeah wow. uh national anthem wise mm-hmm. it's got a nice like, nice upbeat number i feel this is should we have a listen let's do it i love it is Han Solo and Chewbacca walking yeah. down to receive their
0: medals, isn't it? It's not what I think of as a national I mean, it's, it's got all the components, but it's very different. It's a bit show-busy, I think. Certainly not what you'd expect
1: from an ex-Soviet country. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: This is a montage scene where the hero is assembling his military gear for his attack on the villains' compound.
0: I mean, it builds. It upbeat and then it goes quiet again. It's the roller coaster of national anthems. They lost the mo. Oh, momentum. It's coming back. Finale!
1: finish. <laughs> there it is. I like the end. That's good. Flag-wise, you're looking at three horizontal stripes. Okay. These are azure, white, and green in their official terminology. Pale blue, white, and light green. Oh, nice. Uh, And the the colours are are separated by two thin red, new word of the day, fimbriations. Whoa. Red fimbriations. That means that the bands of colour are separated with a little red line. Okay. I would have called it a red line, but fimbriation is the term. Have you
0: seen that in a flag before?
1: I haven't, actually. It's quite new. And it also has a crescent moon and 12 stars at the canton, which is top left-hand corner mm-hmm. uh, basically this pale blue white and light green
0: looks like a packet of mints it's got minty feel to it's it it's a minty fresh flag yeah minty fresh flag
1: <laughs> so economically it used to be a soviet country and it's kind of trying to still be that it's got a soviet style command economy about which more later again but basically that means it's not really a free market it's a lot of government directed activity rather than people setting up businesses and uh, making money for themselves okay it's notable for being a big exporter of a few things cotton being one really notable one because the cotton industry in uzbekistan and the neighboring countries in fact had a really tragic story there's a sea nearby called the aral sea and it began shrinking in the 1960s because the soviet union started irrigation project basically diverting the river to irrigate all the fields for the cotton production of cotton oh okay problem is it was done really badly a lot of the the water was wasted about 75 80 percent of the water would just evaporate before it even got to the fields consequently the rivers that were feeding the aral sea dried up pretty much It became a trickle. From the 60s to 1997, it had declined. The sea itself, the sea had declined to 10% of its original size. (laughs) It's a massive ecological disaster in the area caused by the attempt to grow cotton not very well. I'm kind of staggered by that. It's mind-blowing. Just seen,
0: 10% of the sea left?
1: I've seen satellite images of this sea that then just... Disappears just a, bunch a of ...sort of islands appear, and it just looks... Ah, oh, it's it's remarkable. It's really tragic.
0: Wow, okay. Are there any plans to sort of, like, rectify that, or have we just washed our hands of it?
1: I don't know, is the long and the short of it, but there are reasons why things might be changing, which we're going to talk about. Okay. But they also have gold. They have a place called Murun Tao, which is one of the largest open-pit gold mines in the world. Cool. If you like driving trucks down into the belly of the earth, that's a place mm. for you. And it's the second largest producer of carrots after China and apricots after Turkey. Uh, famous Uzbeks really struggled on this. <laughs> I found a, a list, actually, of about 60, 70 names of famous Uzbeks, of whom I recognised not a single one. <laughs> a lot of very accomplished people. OK. But uh, no, nothing. What, scientists and... not no, they had po- there a lot people. of politicians. Yeah. There was one, though, historically... Timur, also known as Tamerlane, also known as Tamburlaine, You may be familiar with from your dramatic education, right? Yep. Tamburlaine the Great by Christopher Marlowe. Yep. About-
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask me anything about it. I know it really well. <laughs> No, tell me about it. I don't know what that is. So, Tamerlane the Great
1: is a poem by Christopher Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare, and uh, I'm not going to speak more about that because it's about this guy, Timur, who is also known as Timur the Lame, consequently Tamerlane and Tambalane. So, these are corruptions of his name. But he was basically a conqueror, part Mongol, part Islamic, from Uzbekistan, and he had a big empire Mm. that spanned from Russia to India to the Mediterranean Sea. Nice. And uh, he was known for his brutality and genocide. So that was nice. Uh, and that's the famous Uzbek that I right. recognized. recognized. Uh, so yeah, there's not a lot of things you would recognise from Uzbekistan. And there is a very good reason for that, which is that it was very sealed off country and it didn't invite a lot of relations with the rest of the world. So that's quite probably why it's quite difficult to find yeah. uh, Uzbekistan. I mean, we literally,
0: literally nothing that you've told me so far I've known.
1: And there are some very good reasons. We, As a nation, Britain didn't really seem to have much influence in the central asian region as a whole yeah so consequently without those relationships even from the the, the days of the great game the ninth, early 19th century if you don't have the relationships then yeah that was a problem then they became soviet which was not the most open of cultures so all in all we've been fairly deprived of uzbekistan knowledge i think yeah so let me tell you then a history of uzbekistan please do uh archaeology suggests that uh there were neanderthals in the paleolithic era they were hunters and gatherers and they hunted and gathered but the first recorded settlers i'm going to leap to the eastern iranian nomads this is very similar to the story you were telling last yeah. uh, episode where people were sweeping up from iran and going this is nice and saying that mm. so the Scythians, 8th to the 6th centuries bc the iranian Achaemenid empire the parthian empire the Sasanian empire the muslim conquest so essentially what i'm saying here is listeners go back listen to the azerbaijan episode <laughs> and then apply that here and it's all fairly similar it's not a, diff- a hugely different part of the world so those big empires that took over this area pretty much had uzbekistan under the under the empire as well uh, we're still on the silk road we talked about that last week yeah. um goods traveling from east to west and back and forth cities in this country has became rich including a couple of big cities bukhara which i'd never heard of but was a big city on the silk road but also samarkand which was a city that i'd heard of and samarkand as a city in 2001 was put on unesco's world heritage list nice 13th century the mongols show up and did their mongoli thing Mm-hmm. 14th century, the area became dominated by the Turkic people. And this is Tamerlane, Timur's people. Uh, so it was, you could argue, a, an Uzbek empire, and the capital of Timur's empire was Samarkand. Uh, that empire fell apart, as these do. For a few centuries, it was pretty much tribe squabbling in Uzbekistan, until the 19th century, when Central Asia became part of the Russian empire. Mm. Uh, The city of Tashkent, which is the current capital of Uzbekistan, become the political centre of Russian Turkestan, as it was. In 1924, the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic was created. So this is a nation within the Soviet Union. And it was created as an independent republic within the Soviet Union. Independent in inverted commas, as with all things Soviet. 1991, the Soviet Union fell apart, as we know, and uh, the Uzbek Republic declared
0: its independence and became the Republic of Uzbekistan in 1991. So they were part of the Soviet Union soviet union even in quotes independently for what 70 years yes that's a long time isn't it that's quite a, you know that's a few generations of people absolutely
1: and that and living the, under that and the impact of that was really quite lingering for even after the soviet union collapsed because there was a man called islam karimov Mm-hmm. And remember this name. You won't have to remember this name because I'm going to keep saying it over okay. the next hour or so. <laughs> uh, he was at one point the first secretary of the Communist Party of Uzbekistan. Then he was elected the president of independent Uzbekistan when it became independent with a frankly suspicious 87% of the vote. Right. Uh, voter turnout was 94.2% uh, and also described as heavily rigged. Right. Uh, there was an opposition candidate, which was something that then didn't happen for quite a long time afterwards. Mm. Uh, and essentially, President Islam Karimov was basically a dictator trying to maintain it very much as it was a Soviet republic before. And he was in power until he died on uh, 2nd of September 2016. And he was replaced by a Prime Minister, Shavkat Shavkat Mirziyoyev, who in 2021 was sworn into his second term in office after another landslide victory, winning 80% of the vote. Not, not as much as the last guy. No, he's, uh, he's declining popularity. <laughs> it's uh, something to uh, wonder about. But uh, all this tells you that perhaps all is not as free and easy in Uzbekistan mm. as one might hope. <laughs> So let's talk about smell, Mm. shall we? Uh, the subject smells quite tricky, isn't it? How do you Google smell and all sorts of things come up? But to get myself started, I went to the subreddit R Uzbekistan, where okay. I, yeah, Uzbeks can be found mm-hmm. and asked them, what do you think the smell of Uzbekistan that's is? That's a great question. And I got a few answers. The the olden times is a user, uh, he said the distinctive smell for me is Chauzu Bazaar. That's a famous hotspot for tourists in Tashkent. It was strawberry season and everyone was selling strawberries. I've never smelt such a strong aroma
0: of fresh berries before or since. Oh, that's amazing. It sounds amazing. What a great it? memory.
1: Yeah, Chauzu Bazaar's in in the centre of Old Town Tashkent, mm. Chorzu means crossroads or four streams in Persian. Okay, and it's in a an amazing building. It's just outside the station, or it's in the grounds of the station. It's in this building that's like a giant blue flying saucer come to land. It's a huge nice. dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful building, a modern, it's not ancient. So yeah, modern in the sense of the last fifty years or so. I don't think it's this year, last year type. And
0: I could go there and buy my fruit and veg. Absolutely, very cool. I want a strawberry now.
1: Uh, yeah, I didn't bring you any strawberries on I love a strawberry. Uh, the user. K.H. Chakriyore tomatoes in spring and the smell of Tashkent in summer. Smell of buildings, roads, trees, grass because of the heat you feel like your nose is burning. That's that, cool, I like that. Uh, you know that concretey, y tarmac-y smell of life you get in cities that uh, every city kind of has its own smell, doesn't it? It does. And then very specifically from Marmaluk the smell of burger and fries at Yulda's Burger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <a> little <laughs> advert for Yilda's Burger. If you're in Tashkent you crack on and get down there. But the three people I also spoke to all said the same thing about the smell of uzbekistan okay lucifer salant said a piece of freshly baked non which is bread just out of a tandir right which is like a clay oven like a tandoor, tandoor
0: okay yeah
1: they're very similar so non non tandoor tandir oh very they're, close they're very closely uh, linked Uzbek Corners, a cafe in London, if you want to try some Uzbek food. Said the smell of naan that just came out of the tanda, especially in the morning with double cream and honey.
0: Wait, there's a Uzbekistan cafe, cafe in, in London. London. There is. That's amazing. It certainly is. So there's, there's something there. everything in London.
1: But uh Rooks' Sounds also said the smell of fresh tandoori baked national bread called patia at eight AM. Okay, eight AM, 8 a.m. Specifically, 8 a.m. <laughs> specifically. eight AM. I know it's, uh, <laughs> after that, terrible. But yeah, that all 8 a.m. Before. sniff, great. Mm. So, non and patir, these are two different types of bread, both cooked in a tandoor or tandoor mm-hmm. or tandir, various spellings. So, clearly, freshly baked Uzbek bread is a yeah, signature smell to the air. Sure. You know, 50% of the people went straight to it, almost used the same words. Mm-hmm. It was the bread out of the tandoor and usually in the morning as well. Yeah. So, in an effort to put you in an Uzbek mood, yep. I've made you this. He's pulled out a tin. And within it is what looks like dough. That, my friend, is my attempt at an Uzbek bread. Ooh. Now, before we pop this in the oven, here are some warnings that go with this bread. Number one, I am not a baker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number two, we don't have a tandir. We've just got an oven. And the yeah. tandoor
1: is a big part of the taste of the smell of the bread.
0: I could write tandir on a post-it note and stick it on the oven, though. Do that. It'll give it much more authenticity. Yeah. Now, number three, I have tried this once before and it was
1: not good. Right. Uh, it came out about the size of a dinner plate and about the of a dinner plate right and it was as hard as a dinner plate (laughs) was it just a dinner plate it could have been a dinner plate it wasn't a dinner plate it was my attempt at bread so the rehearsal did not go well I'm not going to lie to you
0: Um, well you know it's a well known thing that the dress rehearsal always goes poorly and the first night goes well okay I'm
1: excited then because I was also told by the guys at Uzbek Corner that even they who have all of the equipment they've tried to recreate the amazing Uzbek
0: bread smell and
1: they couldn't do it in this country
0: so it's something very specific to being an Uzbekistan. Exactly. They were saying it's the all the local ingredients and the wow. local water and the local air,
1: I guess. So basically, whilst this is my effort <laughs> to Uzbek bread, I don't think we can probably come away with this having said we yeah. really know what Uzbek bread tastes or smells like.
0: I'm unsure why you put a swastika on the top of it, though.
1: Well, I will explain that, but I would also explain that it's not a swastika. <laughs> if you look carefully, it's H-H-E in little dimpled ah, indentations. Okay. And that is uh, a very specific thing, which I will tell you about shortly. Okay. But pop it in 13 minutes at 210 degrees C, please. Now, obviously we've noticed that this sounds like naan and tandir, sounds like tandoor, and we're not a million miles from Pakistan, India. So you can see how this tradition of bread has travelled in that whole region. But there's two types of bread, non, which is your kind of everyday bread, and patia, which is a kind of folded, layered bread, which is slightly different. So this is a non that we're attempting to recreate. Okay. I've seen different sources. One said there's over 30 types of non in Uzbekistan, and the other said there's thousands.
0: And there's naan in this country.
1: Hey! hey. <laughs> So at its most basic, you put coal and firewood in a tandoor. you heat it for several hours. The walls of the tandy you sprinkle with salt water so your dough is uh, able to be peeled off the side. You slap your dough on the side of the oven. It cooks up nicely, very high humidity and temperature. The result you get is a round, relatively flat bread, mm-hmm. kind of with a bit of a flatter middle. And in the middle, what you see is a pattern of little indents. It's often really elaborate and beautiful in a way that ours isn't. And this is kind of your maker's brand. It's, oh, nice. Uh, it's, so it the brings signature. some art to the loaf, but it also says, this is my bread. Cool. And it's made with a device, a very specific device for the imprinting of the middle of non with mm. your pattern called a check itch. It's just kind of like a stamp. Like, you know, check you itch. have a, a, a rubber stamp and you drive loads of small pins in, in a pattern into mm-hmm. the bottom of it and you just press those pins into the middle of your bread and that's your branding for your bread. That's wonderful. What a great idea. It pretty and it goes, yeah, oh, this is Bob's
0: bread, Ryan's bread, or yeah. uh, History Happened Everywhere bread in this And case. what do they normally do? Like images or words or what? Uh,
1: patterns and images? I've seen sort of flowers, lots of uh, geometric patterns are quite common. That's really cool. So anyway, it's tasty and it's nice to look at. But here's the thing. The reason we're talking about bread so much is bread is much more than just bread to Uzbeks and Uzbekistan in general okay they have a, a particular and profound reverence for bread in Uzbekistan there's an Uzbek proverb respect for none is respect for country right there are a, a lot of rules and sacraments and behaviors around bread as well so you don't just munch on bread freely there was a lot of rules and regulations around bread tell me some so at a meal it's the first thing to be put on the table okay usually by the oldest person present you do not put it upside down okay
0: so, so it's disrespectful if you put
1: it upside down that disrespecting the bread. You don't do that. Do you get bad luck
0: or anything? Or is it Didn't just... Didn't say
1: what the... I think people would just look at you and go, bad person. Yeah. At the start of the meal, you start with the bread. You don't... Okay, I'm okay with that. You don't cut the bread with a knife. You know, this hurts the bread. You break it by hand. Uh, you shouldn't leave any bread. You should uh, finish the bread. That That's not a problem. I'm bought in on that one. <laughs> well, we I may put that yeah, well to we the test in a
0: minute.
1: You definitely shouldn't drop bread. If you drop bread, you should pick it up, put it on top of a wall or in a tree or something for the birds while saying, Aish Allah. God's bread. And if you don't do that, yeah, a passerby will do it for you. Really? Yeah. And then uh, whoever does it frequently other people will kind mm. of thank them and bless them for respecting and caring for the bread.
0: So who's dropping bread?
1: I mean, nobody in Uzbekistan, but yeah. I can imagine a casual tourist running around going, "Oh, I can't eat this bit and right. tucking it on the ground," and thereby exposing themselves, but you're not going to fall for that, are you, Ryan?
0: How do you feed ducks if you can't throw bread on the ground?
1: Uh, that's good. Well, they have to get up to the tree and eat it cuz one of the rules I didn't really I wasn't going to speak about this cuz it felt like you don't put bread on the floor, <laughs> yeah. which seems pretty, pretty commonsensical to me. So yeah, but, uh, yeah you, you're supposed to
0: keep it in an elevated place as okay, well. Okay. So keep your ducks up high. Okay, yeah, yeah. Bring your duck to your bread. I think if we've learned anything, <laughs> keep your ducks up high is the key takeaway. It's a advice for a living, I would say. It is.
1: People swear oaths on bread. When a baby is about a week old, you bring the baby home from the hospital, they have a, a ceremony, Beshika Boglash, where the baby is placed in a beshik, which is a cradle. Uh-huh. and you place bread under the pillow of the <laughs> of the so under the baby's head wow they really love their bread they absolutely do and that, that's done by the most respected older women either from the family or the neighborhood the bread is supposed to keep the evil spirits away because bread is sacred they say a prayer as well so that evil spirits don't harm the baby right but that same day your ceremonial bread will be distributed throughout the neighborhood with an announcement that a special guest has arrived the guest being the baby oh i see When the baby walks, there's a ceremony where they place bread between its legs to bless its path in life. (laughs) Okay. If you want to get engaged, you've got to use your loaf. If the families agree to a match, so it's kind of a matchmaking tradition, they agree with a bread-breaking ceremony. So again, bread is distributed in the neighbourhood as well. Once this agreement has been reached, bread is taken around the neighbouring houses and the people in the neighbouring houses say, who is this bread from and why is it given? And the answer is the family X has broken bread for their daughter. So then you know there's been an engagement and probably not to try it on with that family's daughter. Right, yeah. <laughs> now here's my favourite okay. bread ceremony. If you've got a son traditionally who is leaving home for a long time, going to war, yeah. going overseas for work or for study. Joining the Navy. You bake two loaves of bread face to face and you, the son takes a bite from the bread. Right. And then you keep that bread and you hang it, dry it in the sun, hang it near the ceiling until the son comes back. So it's to guarantee his return.
0: Oh, Wow. But it's got a bite taken
1: out of it. Yes, it's got his bite because he needs to finish his bread so he will return. Does he have to eat it when he gets back? Uh, I'm
0: not clear on that. I would hope not because it's dry and old. But- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a good job it was bread and not like soup or a sausage or something. They could have picked anything and they <laughs> went with bread. Yeah, it's like, we hmm, need to put this soup under this baby's bread. <laughs> head. <laughs>
1: put the soup between the baby's legs. Yeah, just splash the baby, anoint the baby with the oxtail. <laughs> <laughs> So that's bread. Bread's really important. It's culturally important. And it's baking in your not a tandoor right now. I love it. I can't wait to try it. Uh, Another smell that came up was from a user called, appositely, sea waste. We've we've talked about the smell of melons in autumn. What shall I call my online identity? (laughs) Sea sea
0: waste. waste.
1: (laughs) Of all the words to choose from in all the world. (laughs) So the smell of melons in autumn, I I looked into melons a little bit, and it turns out melons are pretty important too. This is slightly different. This isn't as culturally embedded as bread. It's just that melons have a specific, or there's just a lot of melons in Uzbekistan. On.
0: There's many different types of melons, though. Are we talking watermelon? Ah, well, no.
1: We're talking the cantaloupe type. Watermelon okay. and melon. Honeydew. So, honeydew, cantaloupe, those are all melons. Okay. Which have a totally different route to watermelons which are a totally different category so a famous kind of uh, you're aware of marco polo famous traveler early traveler yep there's a moroccan version of marco polo a guy called ibn batuta uh, who's famous for his travels and writing about them in much the same way as marco polo cool uh, he wrote a book called the realer which is actually entitled a gift to those who contemplate the wonders of cities and the marvels of traveling
0: snappy title in- sorry just while I've got you I haven't been timing this by the way the bread? yeah oh I see um, so i should just go and check yeah we should probably do that <laughs> it's not rising that probably will be a problem then. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. i expect this to go horrible <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry about that
1: that's all right so in 1333, Ibn Battuta arrived at the Silk Road city of Urgench, which is in Uzbekistan. Okay. And he wrote, and I quote, There are no melons like Charismian melons. Maybe with the exception of Bukharian ones. Bukhara, also a Silk Road city in Uzbekistan. Yeah. The third best are Isfahan melons, that's in Iran. Their peels are green, the flesh is red, of extreme sweetness and firm texture. Surprisingly, they cut melons into slices, dry them in the sun, put them into reed baskets, as it's done with Malaga figs, and take them to Khwarezm, to the remote cities
0: in India and China, to sell. They are the best of all dried fruit. Two things. This guy knows his melons. He knows his melons, doesn't he? (laughs) He's shopped around and really done his research. He's witch (laughs) melons. And number two, it's amazing the guy was writing this down. What an insight into a world. It's like time travel. Yeah, exactly. And he was probably the authority by the time he's got back to Morocco. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Everyone's like, hey, it's the watermelon
1: guy. No, the melon guy. The melon guy, it's not the watermelon water guy. guy. So melons have a long and proud history, clearly in Uzbekistan. Uh, and they keep coming up, actually. In 850, a guy called Ali ibn Sal al-Tabari wrote Paradise of Wisdom, and he mentions long, sweet melons.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in
1: 955, Muhammad Abu al-Kazim ibn Hawlkal. <laughs> Describes a long melon that was ugly but of the highest sweetness. Uh, he also mentions that melons are cut up, dried, and sent to numerous places in the world. So basically, Uzbekistan is kind of the world
0: melon capital. Dried melon as well.
1: Yeah, and they do it in a very specific and interesting way. In, in mid-15th century, Armenian merchants take melon seeds to Italy. They really catch on. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not watermelons, melons. Uh, but you have to beware the melon. Medieval physicians thought the cold and wetness of a melon, you know, they believe in the humours and heat and dry, sure, having yeah. various effects on the body. So they thought this coldness and wetness would undermine your body's natural heat, upset its equilibrium and would make you ill in fact in 1471 pope paul ii's death was attributed to eating
0: too many melons what? he loved his melons
1: yeah but it's also believed that the this notion of the coldness of the wetness of the melon having to be balanced by something yeah they balanced it in the good old days with ham around so you may have come across ham on melon yeah. parma ham on that's melon a today. thing yeah that's one of the potential places no that idea came from. That's Balancing a traditional the cold thing. and wetness of the humors, with a, a meaty dryness,
0: and also it just tastes nice.
1: Well, yeah, it didn't hurt, does it? <laughs> no, I love bitter melon. Yeah, have you well, brought me a melon. I did not bring you a melon because oh, a one of the many reasons you don't have many active smells massively out of season. I spoke to the guys at the Uzbek cafe, and they said, "If you find any, can you tell us, please?" so oh, really?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I was hoping to bring you Uzbek melon, and I'm afraid I have entirely failed. Uh, Uzbek melons are gold dust. Absolutely. I was hoping to even get some of the dry stuff, but uh, yeah. not really, not really available. I couldn't get hold of them. Okay. In 1876, we're romping through melon history here. Captain Frederick Barnaby. He wrote a book called A Ride to Kiva and he describes how, uh, quote, melon traders would shovel up snow and ice during winter and store it in deep underground cellars. Then in summer, the most succulent melons were packed in ice, which they'd stored since the winter, placed into large lead containers which were heaved onto camels to journey across the deserts to the banqueting tables of the Tsar of Russia, the Emperor of Peking and the
0: Mughal rulers of northern India. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. It really is, isn't there? <laughs> um, okay, I do not think of that time period having frozen goods. But a haulage.
1: Exactly. You've got essentially essentially a fr- what that refrigerated is. van is now a camel with a lead
0: case full of ice. That's incredible. Underground little cellars full of snow and ice. Just to preserve your melons in the summer. That's amazing. How cool is that? That's and great. also, those poor camels carrying lead boxes full of ice. I know, you don't they'd find a lighter weight alternative Oy. but i guess the freezer box didn't really oh, <laughs> happen yes. for quite some time yeah that was a that was a, a way off yet
1: but he also said throughout the winter melons are preserved according to an old method where they are put into straw or net bags and then hung from the ceiling of a special warehouse called a or okay.
0: melon house melon house Get yourself a melon house ryan i mind it hey me should i check the uh should i check the other have a little look yes okay i'm you know, sure it's deliciously brown (laughs) (laughs) all right i'll check it now all right i'm back it's rising it's turning a a brownish color so it's
1: not cooked yet we're shooting for a golden brown and ideally the main point of this is to get that wafting smell of baked bread but not yet not getting it yet okay let's give it some more time okay And talk more about melons. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, I talked about melons that hang from the ceiling in a special warehouse, your melon house. uh, And they still hang melons today, actually. That's still a way of storing your melons.
0: Like meat, ceiling meat. Not unlike ceiling meat, only in melon form. And by ceiling meat, we mean those legs the legs that the spanish and uh iberian folk have dangling mm. from various ceilings we just call it ceiling meat because
1: that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> so this
0: is ceiling melons ceiling melon oh, okay it's yes, amazing yeah. they're still very serious about the melon business there
1: is in fact a 206 page book called melons of uzbekistan
0: <laughs> do you know what i would pay a great deal of money to be given a one-handed flail and a room with a, with a ceiling melons <laughs> And I could recreate Fruit Ninja. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, no, I can't offer you that, but I can offer you the PDF of Melons of Uzbekistan. Okay. Uh, I I downloaded it. Don't recommend it. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's in three different languages, so it's not quite the full 206 pages you have to read, but it is... Dry as dust. It's interesting Interesting to the melon botanist, I believe. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> but there is 40,000 hectares of Uzbekistan devoted to melon growing. They grow about half a million tonnes of melons a year, although that is going up radically. Apparently, a lot more countries are waking up to the Uzbek
0: melon. Literally, like as a breakfast.
1: Right? Absolutely. And yeah. you can eat them fresh, obviously. You can also, as I said before, they dry them, but they still do. You can. They dry them and they braid them. So you know those um, pastries you can get, which is like a plat. Yeah, they look a lot like that. They're sort of because I guess when you dry them, it turns a sort of browner colour, and it's like okay. a, like a little brown plait that you can uh, get <laughs> of dried melon. A plat of dried melon. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can also buy dried melon strips, which are rolled up by hand with uh, raisins put in as well. All oh, right, nice. I really want
0: melon right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry, this is way too much melon talk. I was not expecting. <laughs> You're yeah. listening to melon talk. <laughs> Seeds and Rinds. Episode 247 (laughs) (laughs) of 260.
1: Next podcast in the bag. (laughs) So there's uh, clearly well over 100, 200 and some varieties. These include my favourite melon varietals, Old Lady Melon. Okay. This is because it's wrinkled on the outside, but sweet on the inside. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) There's Wolf's Head. Oh, that's good. Exciting. That's metal, isn't it? Which is also known as The Torpedo. I'm guessing that's the long, sweet one potentially that we were talking about earlier. Okay. One that comes up a lot, which is uh, the pride of of this one area, called Gervak. The Gervak melon, often described as the sweetest, and this only grows in one very small region of Uzbekistan called Khorezm. And again, I was like, "Oh, I'll get Ryan a Gervak melon." Yeah. Not only is it out of season, and it only grows in Khorezm, it also doesn't travel. So basically, you can't get it outside of Uzbekistan.
0: Not even on the back of a camel in a, lead-lined in a lead line box. I, I guess box. if you specifically commissioned it, you probably 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 could but Mm. with the two-week notice i had
1: i was unable to source the uh, the uh, melon of any as becky's so
0: we're just gonna have to travel there and sample some of these i mean that's
1: gonna be the verdict next week all right headed to uzbekistan (laughs) coming back with lead line boxes full of melon from Mm. the world
0: this season on silk road melon hollers Haulers battle the most challenging conditions Here we go! they've ever faced Bring it on! from mountain passes
1: Let's go! Hang on!
0: to desert dunes On oh, the sand in my eyes. a ticking time bomb oh, the ice is melting! a transportation nightmare Oh no! Ah! at the deadliest hazards Snake! Snake!
1: Oh no, it's a
0: stick. Remote kingdoms in dire need of exotic fruit. Let's go, guys! Need it's up to the haulers. Pump, pump, pump. To get the job done. Hey, oh. Silk Road Melon Hollers. Oh, hey, hey, hey.
1: So that was the literal smells of Uzbekistan, the bread, the sacred bread with all the rites and ceremony that go with it, and the melons, which are clearly profoundly better in Uzbekistan than they are in my local shop. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on from a literal smell to a metaphorical smell. Oh, okay. A bad smell at that, my friend, Hmm. the stench of corruption. (gasps) So, you doubtless recall from earlier, in 1924, the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic was created. That was an independent republic in the Soviet Union. Yep. 1938, in this nation, a man named Islam Karimov was born. I've heard that name. You have. His childhood isn't very well documented. It's believed his parents weren't particularly wealthy or very much around, because on two occasions, he was put into an orphanage. Oh, two occasions. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he went to university in Central Asian Polytechnic Institute and studied mechanical engineering and then he goes to work and in a centrally planned Soviet economy that also means joining the Communist Party. He's very successful. He rises the ranks of Communist Party until 1989. Uh, he rises up to the leadership, the first secretary of the Communist Party of Uzbekistan. Okay. 1990, 1991. He's in the Central Committee and the Politburo. So he's in the Soviet Union's head group, the Politburo. That's, uh,
0: so he's a serious he's doing Soviet himself.
1: socialist, this guy. And, in fact, he was so soviet uh, you may remember you may not be old enough there was a failed coup attempt against gorbachev who was trying to open up the soviet union and this group of uh, generals and leaders didn't want him to well karimov was one of those and the coup didn't work and in 1991, the Soviet Union fell apart and Uzbekistan claimed its independence. So you would think that would be bad news for Karimov, who fought against Gorbachev in yeah, yeah, yeah. an attempt to keep the Soviet Union going. No, not so. In fact, he was the one who declared independence after the Soviet Union fell apart and he becomes the president of the New Republic. So why does he do that? Then? He is a survivor. Well, he is hes fundamentally, he wants to stay in charge and uh, right. he sees the way things are going so yeah, he go thinks, with the flow. I will stay in control by declaring independence. As Wikipedia says says uzbekistan under karimov government was classified as a hard authoritarian state oh yay yeah the state's primary legitimacy claims are anti-islamism and anti-ethnic identity so similar to the soviet union anti-religious anti-nationalist it's the soviet or in this case the the nation and the communist party of the nation so it becomes weirdly this anti-islamic islamic country everyone practices islam but the state is very much against it. Uh, in 1995, his term gets extended through to 2000 with a referendum where 99.6 of the voters wanted to extend Karimov's term. Oh, wow. Yeah, what a popular fellow, eh? That was a lot of people. Yeah, uh, there's some people suggested it was not an entirely fair process. <laughs> yeah. He was a very popular man, clearly, although uh, in the West, not making much of an impact. Only seven countries of the West have even an embassy in Uzbekistan. It's repressive, it's authoritarian, it's all the things the West likes to say it is against. Part of that is Karimov's own policy. He actively cuts them off from the outside world. He discourages foreign investment, which slows to a trickle because it's not a free market. It's a completely planned economy. It's his, all about him controlling. Uh, very little news and information is coming out of the country. So it's uh, nobody really knows what's going on there, is the truth of it. Right. Uh, the businesses that are there really struggle, and everything is dominated by not just the state, but Karimov and his cronies themselves. We've seen that
0: before, haven't we, in other communist We have.
1: states. So this is the kind of thing we frown upon, supposedly, in the Free West.
0: Yeah. Except
1: on the 11th of September 2001, the Twin Towers get attacked. Mm. Uh, America declares its war on terror. Uh, Another war on an abstract noun. (laughs) So suddenly, this terrible, authoritarian, repressive regime, which doesn't have free markets and clamps down on its population, is actually an anti-Islamic Islamic Islamic nation not very far from Afghanistan. So now the United States starts looking very interestedly at Karimov and Uzbekistan. They suddenly realise that Karimov is a great guy. He's got nothing but the best interests of freedom at heart. He's trying his best to open up the country, and he's now a key ally in the war on terror. And not only a key ally, but, of course, an Islamic key ally, so a kind of totem of, how oh, this isn't just a war against Islam at all. So suddenly, Karimov is a great guy, and America really wants to pal up to them. In fact, they open an air base in a place called Kashi Kanabad in Uzbekistan. Mm. So the freedom-loving Karimov is, meanwhile, um, not just authoritarian, but also corrupt. He closes down all of the bazaars in the country, leaving the supermarkets as the only source of groceries, which are, A, more expensive, and B, owned by one of his ministers. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now people are forced to this much more expensive place. I don't know why start. they voted for him. Well, <laughs> I know, right? These guys. <laughs> so the smells of the bazaar are replaced by the stink of corrupt
0: money. I'm going to check the oven.
1: Okay. Okay
0: oh mate it's done how does it look it looks is it golden brown it looks delicious alright it smells amazing I opened the oven and it's just I got a waft of bready goodness that's it that's the smell of Uzbekistan almost (sighs) I like it alright I want to live in Uzbekistan
1: let that cool off a bit and we'll have a nibble at the end of this segment oh (laughs) Right. So where were we? ah yes the freedom loving Karamov shutting down everything to help his buddies make their money which is essentially the theme of the place he wants to control everything all of the industry happens to be running through him and his friends so obviously shutting things down and uh basically controlling everything doesn't really help the economy grow so the economy contracts although while we're talking about corruption the imf the international monetary fund who are they they lend money to countries it's a global organization that lends money to countries more or less So crude generalisation, allegedly influenced by the American influence, happily reports a 3% annual growth figure for the country... during this period. Meanwhile, the World Bank, another global organisation which monitors global and national economies, mentions in the same period that the gross domestic product for Uzbekistan drops by $3.2 billion.
0: Right. So someone's not telling the truth.
1: So, yes, there is a book that I'm going to talk about the story of by Craig Murray called Death in Samarkand. And he talks about the meeting in which various ambassadors and the representatives of the IMF talk about what number to give for the annual growth for this country. And it is essentially settled over Dinner where they go probably it's about x amount <laughs> and uh, that's how they settle on these numbers it would seem across wow. dinner whilst an american ambassador is nudging your figures upwards and you are nudging them downwards if you believe what you see
0: in the streets okay so not really an attempt at finding an accurate figure
1: didn't seem to be because the IMF opinion also influenced whether or not there was money flowing into Karimov and the Americans want to keep Karimov sweet because they've got their air base and he's their ally on the war on terror. Right. It's not just economic uh, unpleasantness in Uzbekistan either. There's resp- reports of widespread arrests, torture, the deaths of people doing nothing more than opposing the Karimov regime. Enter Craig Murray who I just mentioned, the young British ambassador newly arrived in Tashkent. He is not like previous ambassadors to the nation who tended to kind of stick in the embassy and go to dinner that seemed to be largely their job he wanted to get out and about into the sights and smells of the real Uzbekistan and really make a difference this guy's a guy on a mission okay does not like what he finds at all and what year is this this is Twin Towers right time. okay yeah, yeah. So two, around 2000 so yes young Craig Murray, one of the youngest ambassadors, I think he was 44 when he became an ambassador uh, he arrives in Tashkent and he gets out and about, he gets in his car which uh, on his own kind of shocks all the staff like, yeah. what? what are you doing? I'm going out to see people and understand what's <laughs> happening. Like, oh the other guys never did that and yes he doesn't like what he finds at all. The, all of the c- claims that the Americans and the British and the West in general is making about Uzbekistan making progress on freedoms and democracy he sees for himself it is still a murderous repressive regime and he writes a telegram home to the UK in the 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 ambassador's telegram, so sort of private mailbox, if you will. A summary of this this telegram, which was fairly incendiary, says, the US plays down human rights situation in Uzbekistan, a dangerous policy, increasing repression, combined with poverty, will promote Islamic terrorism. Support to Karimov regime, a bankrupt and cynical policy.
0: Wow. That is... What is known as a career-limiting move. Yes, the, in fact, literally, the, he shows it to his
1: colleague in the um, embassy, who says, "That's a very long resignation letter." <laughs> <laughs> but this is just an internal memo, and he's not done. He he then goes to make a public speech in which he says, "Quote: Azbekistan is not a functioning democracy, nor does it appear to be moving in the direction of democracy." Now, this is true, but it's the opposite of what the Americans have been saying,
0: and it has never
1: been said aloud in Uzbekistan. Right. So two things happen. The foreign office at home in the UK are very unhappy. Mm-hmm. The Americans are very unhappy. The other ambassadors and the Uzbek people love it. They've, they've oh, really? never heard someone say this guy is corrupt. They've blown away because there's a real lid on this country and you don't say things like that about Sure. So the smell gets worse. As this guy Craig Murray travels the country and covers more and more repression and corruption he discovers factories where aid has been used to buy equipment that was supposed to be new equipment but it's just beating up old second hand stuff and the Mm -hmm. difference has obviously gone somewhere. Uh, He discovers one uh, winery that doesn't even exist at all. It's uh, (laughs) been funded and it's just not there. It's simply not there. Wow. Um, And what was happening was that the I forget which organization it was, lent the money, but an international organization lent the money. The Uzbek bank took the money and it repays the interest on this loan. Yeah. But it's just paying interest from the taxes of the Uzbek people. They never made the winery. They never. Right. They just. The money gets squirreled away in someone's, uh, presumably, Swiss bank account and uh, essentially the. It's a means of fleecing the taxpayers of Uzbekistan rather than, in this case, the people who give the money because they get the interest paid. That's outrageous. Shocking, really shocking stuff. But worse than that is how they treat the people. There's reports of people being tortured and killed, including people who they have photos of. Uh, Craig Murray sends the photos back for examination and he appears to be boiled alive.
0: Wait, whoa, what?
1: What? Yes, this is hardly the moves towards freedom and democracy that we're at hearing about Karimov. Clearly, it's not like that at all. It's a, Boiled a, alive. Boiled alive.
0: Oh, my God. Ambassador. Yes? May I have a moment of your time? Yes, of course. The minister understands that you have been making speeches in Uzbekistan, and he's asked me to express his full support for everything you're doing 100%. He does? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well... All right. However, he was wondering if you you might like to make some tiny tweaks to some of the wording in your next speech. Such as... Well, and this is just a suggestion, okay? Instead of calling Mr. Karamov a brutal, oppressive dictator, he thought you might like to consider law and order enthusiast. Hmm. Well, no, I mean, obviously not that, but old school management style, or rough and tumble politician, you know, something like that. Oh, I see. Anything else? Well... Yes, the minister thought that instead of arrest and torture to suppress opposition, he thought, and feel free to make this your own, runs a robust election campaign. But he doesn't. He is a brutal dictator who tortures people. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. But in a very real sense, isn't it more damning to imply than say I mean anyone could just say it 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 takes an ambassador to
1: imply it I see well in that case as ambassador I would say to the minister that I heartily recommend that he take a journey and become affectionately intimate with himself in
0: a very real sense by which you are implying that he can himself I'll pass it on
1: So Craig Murray keeps remaining outspoken. He's, he's not shy about coming forward about the problems he sees. Uh, He continues to state that Uzbekistan's not making any progress towards freedom and he doesn't think they intend to do so. So the Foreign Office back home is not happy with this at all, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Americans are not happy and this Mm. is at a time when Tony Blair was in power and we were frequently accused of things like being America's lapdog and Tony Blair in particular. The special relationship. Special relationship, exactly. So there's a lot of pressure coming from the Americans going who's this guy? He's undermining our relationship with this Mm. regime and we've got our airbase and this is an important little one of the lily pads they call them in this region where they can project their power the foreign office and the government in the uk are like this is undermining the war on terror supposedly so this guy starts being getting intimidation from the foreign office they start to say that they've got complaints about his conduct drunkenness sexual favors in return to visas there's a whispering campaign going on they're seizing on anything they can find to try and undermine this guy's authority and Mm -hmm. find a reason to kick him out basically right wow This comes to a climax in a set of formal charges that the Foreign Office lay against him. 18 complaints that he said that he's told we're going to investigate these complaints from supposedly staff in your embassy. And he's like, oh, right, well, that's a problem. But he's also told not only are they going to investigate complaints against him, but he cannot tell anybody about this investigation or the complaints. So he's like, well, how do I prepare my defense? against these accusations if I'm not allowed to tell anyone that these accusations have been made and they're being investigated. This is never really explained. So Mm. concluding that he has to do something, he tells some people about the situation. And he gathers his proof of his innocence and the fact that these things have either been wildly blown out of proportion or are in fact untrue completely. And in the end, he gets 16 of the 18 complaints basically thrown out, which leaves only two of supposed behaviours which actually, when they were investigated, it was things like continuous drunkenness then became once he had a hangover at work, right? So these one-time events, so two instances of single events which were held up. But of course, now they've added a 19th complaint you told people about the investigation yeah, well they did to be
0: fair they did say that <laughs> how
1: is that for a catch
0: 22 if, yeah. if you defend
1: yourself successfully that automatically triggers a new accusation of which you are clearly guilty and yeah, you have no yeah, defence. Yeah. so what happens so he gets a formal warning which is is not enough to get rid of him and he's determined not to jump he digs his heels in he's not going to change his way but he's under super pressure he ends up uh actually for a while in a psychiatric hospital because he has essentially a breakdown, but he recovers from that. He gets back to Tashkent. They try and stop him going back on medical grounds. They, they delay his medical approval. Mm. It's, it's just in this war, essentially, with the Foreign Office to stay in Tashkent and stay saying the things he wants to say because he's, he's been very widely recognised within Uzbekistan opposition movement and the people of Uzbekistan and informally various other ambassadors all saying, you know, you're doing something that nobody's really done. You're exposing this regime as being a, a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And you're the only one doing it. So he's determined to keep doing it. So he manages to get back to Tashkent and his role as the ambassador. Uh, And just to show how messed up this relationship he has is, he's kind of fatally undermined at this point, because an ambassador who is at war with his own government is not much of an ambassador at all. But, you know, he's still trying to do what he can, and he still has a degree of independence as an ambassador. Right. So he gets back uh, undeterred. He decides uh, that he's going to send another telegram. Oh, no. (laughs) Again, to the sort of ambassadorial all-staff mailbox, as it were. Yeah. Describing, this time, it's about the receipt and use of information obtained by torture. So it turns out that the Americans and the British are getting information from Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, as a nation, as Craig Murray well knows, gets its information by torturing people. And he describes the use of this torture and the intelligence from this torture as immoral, Practical and illegal this telegram mysteriously finds its way into the financial times and the foreign office blame him for the leak and that is enough for them to remove him as ambassador to uzbekistan
0: i'm surprised that hadn't been done before
1: well he'd been he he was quite scrupulous in a lot of ways in terms of he he was whilst he was publicly saying things he would make sure it was sufficiently true that it was shocking but it was within the bounds of sort of not quite acceptable, acceptable in the sort of higher sense, but annoying to people who want to pretend everything is rosy in the yeah. garden of Uzbekistan.
0: Yeah, it just feels like that you know they could find an excuse to replace him or
1: well because they, they they really tried and it was it mm. was the, the story it's a much longer story than this sure, and yeah. I highly recommend the book it's called Murder in Samarkand by Craig Murray it goes into a lot more detail about the corruption a lot more detail about lot, the horrible things that happened to him and the, the war essentially he has with Jack Straw the Foreign Secretary of the UK at that time and they, they they want him out personally yeah of course but of course also the Silver Service has its rules and its ways of doing things so you yeah. can't just boot him out you have to go through some some fig leaf that says that he's somehow done wrong so yeah there's a a lot of aspersions on him and it doesn't help that then newspapers start featuring him because he's this ambassador speaking out so there's also the risk of if they kick him out without legitimate reason it's going to look really bad and the papers are going to seize on that as well yeah so he's he's kind of out right then time passes and he's kind of sitting at home i guess going well oh, that didn't go well in 2004 though abu Ghraib prison if you recall the scandal of the discovery that actually there were terrible abuses going on there various other scandals emerge that cast doubt on whether usa and the uk are really the good guys in this war on terror and whether it's really worth it and more and more people start to come around to craig murray's way of thinking hmm. But that's fine. But what really made the difference was the Uzbekistan government, Karimov, decides to cozy up with the Russians instead of the West. A multi-billion dollar oil and gas deal is made with Gazprom instead of with American firms. Really? Okay. And Karimov gives the US notice to get out of their airbase.
0: Wow, okay.
1: Right about now, the US and the UK suddenly notice they bloody hate torture and repression. (laughs) And goodness me, isn't it amazing that this Karimov seems to be absolutely full of it. Yeah. Um, There's... There's much more to the story than that. But essentially, yes, when the the oil and the money runs out, it turns out that we suddenly do care. And the whole thing stinks to high heaven and continues to do so. So there's much more to the story, as I say, that the details of this are really interesting. And if you are interested in murder in Samarkand or in the United States, it's known as dirty diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, It's well worth a read.
0: That sounds great. It sounds really good. I admire these people that stand up for their, their morals, despite the overwhelming odds against them.
1: And it's it's a fascinating story because he literally goes out to some locations and he will he stands up to people who are threatening him, police people who are used to just raping people with impunity and mm. being absolutely uncontrolled. And he would stand up to them physically sometimes. There's one instance where he slaps a guy who's shoot, pointing a gun at him. Wow. Um, and it's this crazy mix of this sense of your own importance as Mm -hmm. an ambassador seems to really cut through with a lot of these authoritarian people because the number of times he just starts shouting at people and going who do you think you are i'm an ambassador
0: yeah so all these
1: behaviors that you would kind of consider terrible in a different context of being this sort of entitled arrogant who do you think you are i'm I'm the ambassador, yeah. actually is an incredibly powerful weapon against these kind of authoritarian thugs, really. And he, he puts himself in some quite tricky situations and he, he really has a degree of personal courage that is admirable.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, that he was on the inside, so to speak, as an ambassador... Like he has the the clout and the knowledge and the connections, you'd think to be able to make a difference.
1: Absolutely, and it's a, it's a fascinating insight into that balance of he's representing a government that wants him to do something else, but so he's got to he so can't he's got just to go to off the line and do his own thing. He's got to represent the government accurately, but the government want him to be a specific way, and he won't be that specific way. And to it's, be
0: less human,
1: exactly. It's a really interesting study in different dimensions of power you know as an ambassador he could do things that an ordinary uzbek absolutely couldn't even dream of mm. he could say to karimov i think you are wrong about the gdp being massively up look outside it's obviously going down and yeah. he'd have the he'd have these conversations with karimov and yet on the other side you know he, he ultimately couldn't even hold on to his job Yeah. <laughs> so he's got this powerless powerful dichotomy going on it's a really interesting read and uh I, there's also a dimension to it that I don't want to go into too much because the, the accusations of drunkenness and uh, lechery, just to, not to put too fine a point on it, he doesn't help himself in his own book either because <laughs> the number of times he's like, and then we all went off to the bar and he details the drinks, In particularly in a sort of post-Me Too world, his descriptions of almost all of the women that he comes across, smashing figure, kind of really old school, wow, sexism okay. Yeah, that doesn't things, help, does it? Doesn't help him at all. Mm. So you can see how he kind of got himself in trouble to some extent as well because his relationships with the people around him seem to be old school,
0: to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I understand.
1: Uh, Pete, I want some bread. Well, uh, why don't... Who's the oldest here? I suppose it's me, isn't it? It's definitely... So I should bring it to the table. As the oldie, I shall break bread. Please. Not cutting it with a knife. Do you want to put it between my legs? I think you're more than capable of walking already. I don't wish to bless your path. <laughs> Right, so let's break a little. Okay. well, oh, it's warm. It's quite solid. I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be, but let's pass it over see how that goes.
0: Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, the smell is definitely fresh baked bread. It's just a delicious smell. Salty almost. All right. was really tasty.
1: So I don't know how it's supposed to be, so, <laughs> so I don't know whether this is an accurate rendition or otherwise. I suspect it's quite a way off, given the various compromises
0: we had to make. <laughs> Have a bit more. Um, so what do people do with it just eat it as bread or do they dip it in food do they well coat it in butter the
1: guys were keen on yoghurt and honey with it okay Uh, I think there's there's as many things you can do with it as you can think of that
0: was amazing that was so good well done So that was the metaphorical stench of
1: corruption, not just in Uzbekistan, but in the US and UK. The powers who are happy to overlook torture and the equally metaphorical breath of fresh air in the form of Craig Murray, ambassador who refused to turn his nose
0: up at the truth. You've been working on that this week, haven't you? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> but from my perspective, I love that. And that's mainly because you brought food and I ate it and I loved it.
1: Yes, I fed you. That's always the secret There's to success with Ryan. It's a huge on, success. On Dursley. I'll have to cook him a fresh one maybe for next week to try and bribe him up. That sounds great. I've send him the dough and make him put it in the oven. He'd love that. <laughs> a huge
0: success. Well done, Do Thank you, sir. But I thought
1: Uzbekistan was a fascinating country. I really enjoyed researching this one.
0: Yeah, it has this underlying darkness to it, though, doesn't it? This is from what you've been
1: telling me. It was a shame. You feel like this is a place that could really blossom at some point, and I hope it does.
0: Yeah, me too. Blossom! Uzbeks. <laughs> now! <laughs> Well, you know what it means. The
1: Dursilator.
0: It's the later. It's time to wheel it out. So uh, I'm just going to prime it. Prime the pumps. Insert Mm -hmm. Ylang Ylang in the slot. (laughs) (laughs) Might have to deodorise it for next week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are you ready, Ryan? I'm always ready for this. I love it. Oh, this is a good one. Hit me. Your country is... Benin. All right.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool. Give me a time. Your time is... 1850
0: to 1900 CE. All right. Sounds That's, good.
1: That sounds like a doable time period. There will That's be something written world. down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're ranking on that, aren't you? All right. So this is where it gets fun. Um, Give me the topic. Are you ready for the topic? I mean, never. Should we do the topic later? No, let's do the topic now. Do want to really do the topic now? Well, I mean, yeah. I'm, you put I'm keen on. to... Why, why are you, why are you doing it? do topic Yeah procrastination oh nice see what i did there i did you were procrastinating <laughs> so okay so let me get this right it's procrastination in benin during 1850 to 1900 it certainly is i'm on it that's fine i'm excited. nailed it
1: i am excited
0: Okay. Well, look, there we are. That's the show for this week. There's very little else to say, except thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete's talked about on this episode, or just to say hello, you can totally do that. You can reach us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at HHEPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hello and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation can really help us to bring the show to new listeners. If you're on social media, if you're on the Instagrams,
1: TikToks, Facebooks or Twitters, you can find us. We are at HHEPodcast. If you subscribe, uh, we do a little video every uh, twice a week, more or less. It's a one minute video and I think you would enjoy it very much and you'll get
0: an alert if you subscribe. We're going to be back again soon with lord dursley and the verdict but (laughs) (laughs) you should be but in the meantime uh, if you can't get enough of the show check out our back catalogue of episodes which you can find in your podcast app on youtube or on our website hhepodcast.com all right so that's it a huge thank you to peter thank you to you ryan i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to Happened everywhere. You smell that? No. What about this? No. This? Nope. Okay. All right. Uh, what about this? No. Hmm. All right. This. No. What about that? Oh, yeah. What, really? No.